Last week we talked about um, what I could call this week redemption in three dimensions. That we think of the gospel typically in our context, our cultural context, in terms of guilt and innocence. And yet it's much more than that. That the gospel is actually in three dimensions. I introduced them last week. There is a, a guilt-innocence framework that we in the West typically think of. Most of the world actually understands the gospel and the Bible as it is written from an honor-shame framework. That uh, shame being a loss of, of honor, honor being a restoration from shame. And, of course, in the Middle East, in that cultural context, that cultural milieu that the Bible is given to us in, God chose to reveal himself in what is primarily an honor-shame culture, secondarily a fear-power culture, with an awareness of the spiritual dimension that the West, the secular West, has seemingly forgot. And thirdly, the, the Middle East uh, culturally sees the story of the gospel from a guilt-innocence framework. All three of those are there. All three of them are equally important. They're like three legs on the stool, if I can use that analogy, and yet we, we typically lean the stool on one leg. And I talked about a, a a, a, a significant shift in our own culture, a postmodern shift in the last couple of generations that um, no longer relate to a rules-based society, but to them it's a relationship-based society. And a rules-based society or culture understands things in a framework according to the rules, guilt or innocence and according to an established rule, an authoritative rule. But a relationship-based culture understands things in terms of relationship, which is going to be in terms of shame and honor. Because shame and honor is about being included or being excluded. Shame and honor is somewhat perceived in ourselves, about ourselves, but it is especially and most importantly perceived by us in relationship to others around us. What do people think of me? I, I described it last week. Shame as an intense, painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Think I'll eat some worms. That's shame. Honor is the worth or value of a person, not only in their own eyes, but in the eyes of others. That is key. That's why relationship-based cultures or relationship-based generations understand the gospel. It resonates with them on a shame-honor framework because that's their currency. That's where they function. And when we relate the gospel merely in terms of guilt and innocence only, we have a one-dimensional gospel, a flat gospel that doesn't necessarily answer the questions their heart is asking. How can I belong? Where can I find worth? Why do I matter and who do I matter to? Shame is about feeling unworthy and unwanted unaccepted, unloved. Honor is valued, loved, belonging, significant. It goes a little further. I talked about guilt in the sense of, in fact, there's a book that I, I used, um, I, I referred to, 
Um, I put a few copies of it on the shelf in the back. And by the way, all of those books on that shelf back there you may have. I simply ask you that if you take one of those books, take it to read it. And then who could you pass it on to? Don't take it so that we move it from that shelf to your shelf. They're pretty books, some of them, but that's not what they're for. So if you take something from there, the rule is, because I'm older, I'm rule-based, the rule is you have to read it, okay? At least try. And you say, pfft, doesn't make any sense to me. Then find somebody to give it to, okay? So I put some of those copies of 3D Gospel back there. But, but that book makes the statement, describes um, guilt versus shame in these terms. Guilt says, I made a mistake. That's recoverable. We could fix this. Shame says, I am a mistake. It strikes to the core of my own being and identity. Guilt responds in more helpful ways than shame does. Guilt responds in ways of perhaps confession, apology. How can I make reparations? How can I make restitution? How can we fix this? Because I made a mistake. How do we repair it now? That's the question that guilt drives us to. So guilt can be healthy. Shame almost never is healthy. Shame responds in one of four different ways. Withdrawal. I don't belong, and so I withdraw, and I hide. Or I distract myself from those feelings of unworthiness. I distract myself often in some kind of addictive behavior. Distracting in terms of um, substance abuse, alcohol abuse, uh, filling my life with activities um, in um, a, a online gaming. Maybe I spend all my time in a virtual reality of gaming or maybe pornography. Distracting myself, pulling out of the real world which hurts into a virtual world to try to find significance. Or shame results in I am not worthy, so I harm myself. I should be punished. I harm myself. Or shame strikes out and seeks to harm others, seeks to hurt those who have hurt me. None of those four, withdrawal, distraction, harming myself, harming others, none of those four reactions of shame are reparative. And yet the gospel speaks directly to shame. Because the gospel, over and over in God's story, he turns shame to honor. It's called an honor-shame reversal. We talked about that last week in the book of Philippians, right? Philippians chapter 2, Jesus has all honor and he takes on shame. Not only the shame of humanity as compared to God, deity, but he, he humbles himself to death, even the death of the cross. And then God has highly exalted him and us in him. So there's a shame-honor reversal in Philippians 2 that is at the heart of the gospel. That shame-honor reversal is found all through the book, and that's what I want to spend some time unpacking today. So we're going to go further. I, don't, I have three story, four stories in your notes, and you're thinking, oh my goodness. I realize I kept you too long last week, and I'm not going to do that again. Okay, we have plenty of weeks to, to spend time on this. I really don't think I'm going to get to do much with the Ruth story, at least. But we'll see how it goes. Again, let's pray. Father, would you help us here? Lord, would you, would you speak to our hearts? 
Father, would you broaden our standing? Lord, you're... You taught us to pray that we might know what is the height, the, the, the width, the breadth, the depth of the love of God for us. Father, would you open our minds in terms of the dimensions of the gospel? Would you help us to see that in our guilt you have made us innocent before you, righteous in your eyes? That in our shame you have lifted us, you have included us, you have brought us home in your own love for us and treasuring us. Father, that uh, no matter what we fear, no matter what spiritual enemies are against us, you are the almighty God. Lord, remind us of your power toward us who believe. Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see wonderful things from your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start in the beginning. I want to start in the beginning. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 3. In the beginning, God created heavens and earth. And God created man. God created humanity. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. Don't lose sight of that. That's huge. He creates them in his own image, and he gives them one rule. That rule is don't, you can eat everything in the garden except this one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that one. That is not going to be good for you. That one will poison you. And Adam and Eve together, in relationship together and in relationship with God. So there in the garden, you had rules and relationships. And, and it is very good. They have under unhindered connection and community with God and with each other. They are naked and unashamed before one another and before God in his presence. They're given power and authority over all creation. Adam names every other creature that God has made. That giving, assigning of the name that Adam has that right is his authority over all of these creatures. God sets them up in power authority as his regents over creation. God is sovereign, and they rule on his behalf. They are without fear of death or beast, creature, or spirit. They are innocent. They are honored by God, lifted up above creation, made in his image, and they have authority and power over that creation. But then they believe the serpent's lie. They believe the serpents lie questioning God's honor. They trusted what they saw for themselves rather than God's decree and God's word. They ate the forbidden fruit and they became guilty instead of innocent. They were seeking their own status and honor to be themselves like God. And they became instead like God's enemy, Satan. They exchanged the honor that God had given them for the shame of the serpent. They, they found themselves naked, exposed, shamed, and afraid. They had power, authority over all the other creatures, and yet they listened to, they put themselves under the serpent. And Romans 6 tells us, you are the servant of the one whom you obey. They obeyed Satan. They obeyed his messenger, the serpent. Now God comes seeking them, calling them. God questions them to draw out confession even as they blame one another and others. Adam says, it's the woman you gave me, God. It's your fault or her fault. It's somebody else's fault but my fault. 
Been there? Anybody else but me? The woman says, well, God, it's a this, it's this, it's this serpent. He, he said, and he deceived me, tricked me. And on it goes, down the, down the chain, stops at the serpent. Men created in the image of God are now referred to as being made from dust, and to dust they will return. Created in the image of God, and now dust is their destiny. They have exchanged honor for shame. They will be fearful in the midst of creation now. Fearful of spiritual powers and even fearful of some of these beasts and creatures whom they were to have authority over. Even the plants are going to give them a hard time. Have you ever been through a blackberry patch? Thank you, Adam, for that. You see, we, we, we are even to some extent afraid of plants. Okay, not uh, spinach or kale, they're basically harmless, but, but rose thorns, blackberries. We, we, had a, we had a bush in Swaziland, it was called Lugaganeni. And uh, that basically translates, you don't come through clean. You will not go through those bushes without them leaving their mark. There's been a reversal, guilt to innocence, or rather innocence to guilt, Honor to shame, power and authority, dominion over creation to fear. That's the story of Adam and Eve. And yet God, even there in the garden, provides a covering for their shame. He provides the promise of a future victory in power of the woman's seed, crushing the serpent's head. There is restoration coming. That's the story of Adam and Eve, a story in the garden. Those other dimensions of shame and honor that are part of that story, of fear and power that are part of that story, that God's power is not diminished even if Satan has usurped it and the man and the woman tried to. God's power is not diminished. God's end will still happen. And those aspects of honor and shame, as well as fear and power, Along with guilt and innocence, those need to be shared in our generation today. Those are aspects that we miss often in our presentation of the gospel. Where right and wrong are now relevant, guilt and innocence seem to be matters of opinion. Where scientific certainty has now been reduced to a consensus of opinion, who's to say what's right or wrong? who's guilty, who's innocent, but I know what I feel about myself. I'm very worried about what others feel about me. Not to mention, what does God feel about me? Now, to some of, some of us, and uh, to some extent, this will be proportional to our age. We have a hard time equating shame, honor, versus guilt, innocence as being just as important. But I think you'll see it woven through Scripture. Let me give another example of that. Job, the book of Job, is a story that gives you trouble. I know you get the big picture, it all turns out good in the end, but what a miserable journey, huh? We read the story of Job and we can't help feel that even though we know the curtain gets pulled back and we see what's happening in the beginning, 
We get it that, that there's this thing going on between Satan and God, but still, why does all this stuff happen, happen to Job? What did Job do in the midst of all this? We read the story of Job, and somehow along the way, if we read through it, we don't even like to read the whole story. It gets so circular and confusing. But along the way, if we do, we can't help ourselves somehow being drawn in to Job's argument to say, yeah, God, this isn't fair. Because fair is not the point in the book of Job. The book of Job is, is one of those stories where, where guilt and innocence alone is not enough. Guilt and innocence do not answer the questions. Job's friends come to him with that answer. Job's friends come to him with the answer that, you know, you, obviously there's something here you need to confess and seek God's forgiveness for. And if you do that, you know, God will, God will return and bless you again. That's the issue that's the problem. Let's rehearse the story of Job. Job is brought from honor to shame. If he could just get past the obstacle of being stuck on his, on his, on his innocence, he's, he's able to more rightly fear God as someone completely, God is completely outside this notion of a transactional relationship. If I do this, then God will do that. That's a rule-based guilt innocence, and there's some of that that is a genuine principle, but that's, that does not rule completely our relationship with God. That's the balance. Job needs to get past that transactional relationship with God. He will experience God's power to restore him from shame to honor, not only before heaven, but also before his friends, his counselors. Job's a good man. In fact, Job is so good. In heaven, God points him out. Job is like Noah. There's nobody else on the earth like him. Satan's been sniffing around the earth looking for trouble. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? Job is like, what? God, what are you doing here? Why would you point me out? You know why? Because God is so proud of his man Job. There's nobody like Job. That's why God points him out, even knowing that it's going to cost Job something. Satan's answer says, oh, yeah, sure. Job's good because you pay him to be good. The man knows who butters his bread. You protect his kids. You bless his crops. You multiply his livestock, his camels, his sheep, his, his oxen, his donkeys. Yeah, you take away all the good stuff and let's see how good Job is. So God does, allowing Satan to bring troubles first on all that Job has. A gang of thieves come and they murder Job's workers, probably his friends, and they steal his herd. Meanwhile, a terrible storm with lightning strikes and wipes out his whole flock of, of sheep. They're all killed. I don't know if the lightning creates a fire or lightning strikes each and every. I don't know how it happens, but they're gone. More bandits kill other servants and run off with all of his camels. Meanwhile, there's a great wind like a tornado that strikes the house. All of his adult children have been having dinner together. They've been celebrating together, and all ten of them are killed. Later, Satan is also going to attack Job's own body with terrible weeping, itching sores from head to toe. 
Now, Job's situation seems severe. Job's situation seems unlike any real situation that you've experienced in life, right? Job's situation is over the top, too much. It might even be hyperbole, we think. But Job's situation is not so different than a lot of people in recent years. I think of the, of the farmers in Zimbabwe who were brutally driven off. Many of them murdered. Their families killed before their eyes not to mention those loyal workers losing everything that they have. I think of Christians in South Sudan or in Iraq who were brutalized, terrorized, fled in the middle of the night for their lives with a few belongings that they could clutch and carry with them. Many brutally cut down and killed because they would not deny the name of Jesus. I think of family after family brutalized in our own country by violent crime, losing property and maybe even the life of a child in the mix, in, in the mix of a drive-by shooting. One gangbanger to another it makes no sense at all. God, where were you in the midst of all of that? Imagine somebody, maybe somebody you know who lost their job in that 2008-2009 crash. Where'd that come from? Oh, it was the economic manipulation of others that created this huge bubble that then popped. The economy comes crashing down. Many lose their jobs. When they lose their job, they can't pay the mortgage. They lose their house. Personal bankruptcy. They lose their job. They lose their house. They also lost their health insurance. And then somebody was diagnosed with cancer. Well, there still was some sort of a safety net. They still could go and get some sort of treatment. There was Medicaid or something, but it wasn't responsive enough, didn't have the same treatment options, and they did not make it. That's not a made-up story. That really happened. They lost everything, even the lives of loved ones, in the midst of something that was beyond them, was other powers at play somewhere and it ruined their lives. That's kind of like Job. Job's guilt is not the issue. So telling Job, or your friend, to confess and find forgiveness doesn't answer the hurt in their heart. To whittle God's redemption down to a tit for tat, if you do this, then God does that, is to gravely dishonor God himself and his redemption. Job's friends trying to help him spend the next 30 chapters in the book of Job. 30 chapters debating with Job how he surely must have done something to incite God against him. Surely, Job, you must be guilty. You can't be innocent. Nobody's innocent, really. Come on. But Job's guilt or innocence is not the point in the story. Finally, well, let me pause there for a moment. I think I mentioned briefly in the second hour, I didn't mention it in the first hour last week, the example of an abuse vi victim. Maybe in their childhood they were shamefully abused by somebody else. They were victimized, and how do they feel out of that? They're left feeling dirty, unworthy, unwanted. And that acts out in all kinds of ways, often self-harmful ways. And along the way, the, the, um, the crime comes out, and the, the guilty one actually confesses and seeks forgiveness, and in a church environment with confession, 
Forgiveness can be given. What about the victim? The victim is told within the church circles, you know, you need to forgive also. In fact, you need to forgive or else God won't forgive you of your sins. You have sinned too, just like them, and you need to forgive them just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And that actually puts more guilt upon them for not being able to just let go of all of this that is in their heart, the shame that resides there, the, the, un, the sense of unworthiness and dirtiness that they can't shake. And forgiveness doesn't change it. The part of the gospel they need to hear is not God will forgive them because the one injured has not done anything wrong. The part of the gospel they need to hear is even those who have been shamed, even those who have been brought low, even those who have been made to feel unworthy and of love, they are treasured by God himself. And God himself takes the cast off things of this world, the despised and the rejected of this world. God takes that one and he treasures them. And he lifts them. In fact, he so loved that one, he gave his own son, Jesus, for them. That's the gospel they need to hear. No matter how you've been treated in this world, the God who made you loves you. The God who made you treasures you. The God who made you will lift you. And we cannot even understand the glories that God has for us. Now, we could unpack that a whole lot more, but that's the direction. That's what heals. Reminding the one who's been shamed of the honor that God bestows in his restoration. In chapters 38 to 41, God meets Job. God says to Job, okay, Job, you want to talk. You want to sort this out. All right, let's do this. Let's get together. Let's talk. Tell you what, you, you bring your universe that you made, and I'll bring mine, and we'll compare notes on how a universe should be run. What's that, Job? You don't have a universe? We're not on, this, on a level playing field here. God spends the next three chapters reminding Job simply of God's great power that is so far above Job in situations. Not that it's irrelevant to Job in situations, but that Job has been looking at this on a transaction almost of equals. And God is not his equal. And God's power can be trusted to deliver, to raise him, even as he is in some ways eluded. Beyond the present troubles of this life, I can trust myself to God, who is gooder than I am, who is more just than I can ever imagine being, and who has the power to pull it off. When the systems of justice in this world that we rely on do not. But God does. God has the power to honor. That's the point of those last three chapters of Job. And how does it end in chapter 42? What happens with Job? In chapter, chapter, chapter 42, the last chapter of the book, Job's honor is restored. He prays for, Job prays for the guilt of his three friends who thought he was guilty. 
they are forgiven when Job prays for them. And Job's, all Job's stuff is doubled. Think about it. His, 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 his camels are doubled. His oxen are doubled. The sheep that he lost in the lightning storm, his sheep are doubled. Even his 1,000 donkeys are doubled. Now he's got 2,000. I don't see how that's a good thing, but God's ways are above our ways. I don't know what you would do with 2,000 donkeys. I've heard one, and one was more than enough. And yet, all of God, and he gets 10 more children. You say, wait a minute. That was the worst of it, Bob. That was the worst of it. He lost his kids, and he only gets 10 kids. He, everything's doubled, but why aren't his children doubled? Why aren't there 20? You know the answer, don't you? You know why his children weren't doubled in the end because he never lost the first 10. That has been helpful. Realizing that has been helpful. But when parents lose a child, they're not lost. God knows exactly where the child is in his own, in his own arms. And and, and he reminds us of that too. He tells us, he told David so that David could say, well, what am I going to do now? I can't, I, no sense keeping grieving now. The, God is not going to bring the child back. The child is gone. I'll go to him, but he won't come back again to me. The child's not lost. The child's just no longer here. But I haven't lost that child. Job's 10 weren't lost, and so God gives him 10 more because his children are doubled too. And through the ages... In the resurrection, Job's going to have 20. I don't know what you do with 20 kids either, frankly. But this is apparently a good thing, even better than donkeys. Okay? God honors Job. God lifts him up. God has the power as the maker and ruler of the universe and spiritual power and authority even over Satan and whatever he would do in your lives and mine that he has the power to lift us, to raise us, to honor us. That's the point of the book of Job. Set in a part of the world that centers on shame and honor. And you see the, the Job's honor before men and others before even heaven itself. His honor is reduced to shame. And the one who is looked up to as a pillar in the community is now despised by everybody. And it goes on, and we don't even know how long. He loses everything. He's nothing. And then God lifts him up. God uses him to restore the other three. And then God lifts him and honors and gives him back more than he had before. God abundantly honors him. And I don't know when, and I don't know how, but I do know ultimately and fully that's what our Savior has done for us. We don't need to try to recover honor and try to carve out our own significance and standing in the eyes of others by what we wear, by who we know, by what we drive or where we live or what titles. Are. We don't need to do any of that because I am a child of God. I am an heir of God and a joint heir. I am a member of God's own household, the church what is it called by Paul to Timothy? He reminds them in the middle of the spiritual darkness of Ephesus, he said the church is the household, the family of the living and true God. That's who you are. 
You are his. You are his treasured possession. I don't know who has rejected you and made you feel like you don't matter. But I know who has told you you matter more than anything. God's words to Jesus are in some way his words to you. This is my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. God has lifted us in honor. It answers a lot about the nonsense that's going on today. There are stories of loss and tragedy in our lives and the lives of people around us that guilt and innocence are not the point. They're not enough. We need to remind that in the midst of that kind of stuff and the brokenness of this world, God entered himself. Jesus, from honor, took on shame. He came into the middle of it for us that he might lift us with him above and beyond it. That's the gospel. Moses and Pharaoh is an interesting story. Moses is, is, is another story where God's power is, is evident. God's power overrules worldly and demonic authority. I want to survey again Exodus chapter 1 to 15. Now, I, I gave you these passages in the notes because I'd love for you to read. I'd love for you to read the book of Job. If you don't read all of Job, read chapters 1 and 2 and chapter 42 sometime today or in the next week. I'd love for you to read Exodus 1 to 15 and see this whole power dynamic at play here. Moses is a baby. And as a baby, Moses is saved from Pharaoh's decree. Pharaoh issues a decree that all these Hebrew children, all these male children should be killed. Moses is rescued from that decree Pharaoh's murderous plan by being rescued by Pharaoh's own daughter, drawn out of the river, the one whom Pharaoh tried to destroy, the one who Pharaoh tried to eliminate, is actually protected, nurtured, grows up as a prince in Pharaoh's own household. God is having some fun here, saying, look what I can do. I don't really want to think of it in terms of God saying neener, neener, neener to Pharaoh, but it's something like that. Okay, God is in charge here. See God at work in this reversal. Moses as an adult now. Moses as an adult, the prime of his life, maybe he's 40 years old. He sees injustice around and he says, I've got to do something about it. And yet Moses in himself, he cannot deliver Israel from Pharaoh. He can't deliver Israel. The, he can save one Israelite's life by killing the Egyptian who is brutalizing him. But the next day when he tries to go and make peace even between two Israelites, what happens? They say to him, well, who made, who, who, who made you the, the ruler over us? What, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses knows. Moses fears. What he did is known. What if it gets back to Pharaoh? Moses fears Pharaoh. That Pharaoh's going to know that his prince, Moses, is actually a Hebrew slave. And he's going to have him killed because of what he has done to this Egyptian. So Moses loses all of the glories and pleasures of Egypt. And he flees into exile, an alien in a foreign land, the land of Midian. Moses' honor has been reduced to shame. He's been emptied of any glory of Egypt. And God meets him there in power. Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush. 
God meets Moses in the burning bush, and, and, and just by revealing himself to Moses, just by Moses being the one who gets to see this burning bush and hear from God and to be told, take off your sandals because you stand on holy ground. He's in God's presence. Moses' stock has just gone up. It has skyrocketed. God has chosen him. Oh, he's nothing to Pharaoh. He's not much in Midian, really. It's who his, who his father-in-law is that seems to matter, but God has chosen him, hiding in the desert. And God said, go, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. So who am I? God has honored Moses, and, and yet Moses clings to his shame. Moses says, they won't listen to me. I don't have any answers. I can't speak well. I, 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 I stutter. Why is it that even though God has chosen us, God has honored us, God has lifted us, why is it that we hold to our own shame, our own estimation of what it is that we can do? Yeah, we've already discovered we can't do. And yet God has told us of his power, such that Paul prays, oh, church, that you would know the greatness of his power toward you who believe. We need to know it. That's why we dare pray. That's why we pray for Evan and, well, he's not, there he is, he's here. God lifted him up. That's why we pray for Mark Rigo. And they expected to be in the hospital normally 10 to 14 days, maybe more. Surgery seemed more serious maybe than it originally was going to be, and yet he's already home? He's already home? Not even seven days in the hospital. And they are thrilled with his progress. Everything is great. Not only that, but we prayed that God would lift him and Kimberly, sustain them and show them his glory and give them hope and confidence in God. And all through the week that has been, I've, I've been reading texts from Kimberly one after another, praising God for what he has done. We prayed for Mike Lambert. God preserved him. God kept him. I talked to him yesterday, and he's just thrilled with what God has done. He's thrilled with the conversations he got to have with his family, knowing that he was looking, not making it in the eye, and telling them, I am good with God. God, I trust him, whatever happens here, and you need to know that. And yet, God answered our prayer. That's why we pray. That's why we don't shirk back. That's why we don't hold back. When, when you hear the elders of the church have said, we want to pray for you, tell us how to pray for you. James says, man, call the elders. Let them pray. Let's do that. But when we pray, I mean, one of the things you can do, you've got somebody in a situation or circumstance and you can't change it. You say, oh, I don't know what to do. You know? Well, just pray for them. You've got somebody that you're witness to and they won't listen. You say, tell I read just recently one person's approach in the Muslim world. When they're praying for, when they're trying to witness somebody and it begins to get argumentative, they do this. They say, tell you what, I don't want to argue about Jesus, but I'm, I'm just going to pray for you. And when Jesus shows himself to you, you come see me again. And over and over again that's happened. Just why don't we pray? And, 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 and when we pray, we come boldly. We don't say, oh, God, if maybe you would. You know, Lord, it's probably not your will, but if it might possibly, Lord, if you, if you did choose to, just pray. Just ask, ask. We come, what's it say in Hebrews? Come 
boldly. Say that with me. Come boldly before the throne of grace. Now there's balance there. We come boldly. We can ask. It is not the throne of entitlement. God, you have to do this. God, because I'm a Christian and by his stripes we are healed, that you have to heal me. Guess what? These mortal bodies are going to die. The Bible tells us that. So how can I claim healing forever in the atonement? That doesn't work, and yet God sovereignly heals, and I don't even know why he does it, but he does. And I can come boldly before the throne of grace, not asking as an entitlement, not demanding, but because God is God and I am not, but he invites us to ask, why don't we? Why don't we? Let's do it. We would be amazed at how God answers when we just ask him. We feel ourselves sidelined, powerless, forgotten, not unlike Moses. God will do what he does, but we seem to be out of the picture. God seems to have moved on without us. Maybe I disqualified myself by jumping ahead, kind of like Peter did with Jesus. And yet, look what Jesus does with Peter. What could God do with me? What could God do with me? Let me tell you, folks. It's folks like you and I that God seems to do his best work with. God takes the little things. God takes the weak things. God takes the seemingly foolish and insignificant things of this world, and that's where God shows his power. Right there. Right here, people like us who don't seem to bring a lot to the table, that's okay. God's got all he needs on his table already. And he has chosen for some crazy reason to do it through us. Our confidence is not in our power, our position, whether our physical, political, or financial strength. Our strength is in the Lord. The one who said it is not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, the warrior king of the armies of heaven, and his spirit lives in you who believe. Wow, look what God has done for us. God lifts and restores the needy and the vulnerable. Last very quick one, the book of Ruth, the story of Naomi, I'm not going to go into it. I'll save that one for later other than to just say this. Naomi lost everything. All she has left is Ruth, and Ruth is a liability. She's going home to Bethlehem with a Moabitess daughter-in-law who's simply a reminder of how badly it went for them in Moab. She has no sons, only this Moabitess daughter-in-law who seemingly her sons probably shouldn't have ever married to begin with. And God is going to use Ruth. To restore, according to his promise, based in his law, he's going to use Ruth and this whole kinsman-redeemer thing that we don't really understand about the law to lift up not merely Ruth, but Naomi. When Ruth's first child is born, a little boy named Obed, you know what they say? A son is born to Naomi. Naomi has a son. Naomi has someone now who will care for her. Well, the family will. 
But God has restored her. God has lifted her up, not merely now as the, not merely as the um, wife of Elimelech, whoever he is, but God has now made her the great-great-grandmother of David himself. And God has put Naomi squarely in the line of Jesus the Messiah. And how does he does it? How does he do it? Through Ruth, the Moabitess, who always in Scripture is called not merely Ruth, but Ruth the Moabitess. Lest we forget that it's the discarded ones of this world are the ones whom God honors. That's who God lifts. Can I show you one more thing? Yes, I can. It's up to me. Okay. <laughs> Let me run through three Beatitudes with Job, Moses, and Naomi. Here's the first one. Those like Job who suffer unjust accusation and loss. Remember, Job's innocent. Job's pure. <laughs> Consider my servant Job. The blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? Jesus said they will see God just like Job did. Here's another one, Moses. Like Moses who feels sidelined, powerless, forgotten. Blessed are the meek. In Numbers, Moses is said, Moses is meeker than any man on the face of the earth. Moses, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. They shall inherit. Moses is the one who brings his people out of Egypt towards their inheritance. Naomi, she lost everything. She's left with nothing, helpless and vulnerable. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And because we've seen God do that, God bring beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Because we have seen God honor those who were shamed, God, God own and take to himself those who have been cast off and rejected. Because we've seen that there, we know that Jesus' words are true for us. And not only that, God will use us because those words are true for people around us. Let's pray. Father, would you do that? Lord, would you make these words true, not only for us, we, they already are, but would you, Father, use us in ways that we don't expect to make your word, your promise, your honor, your glory true for people around us who need Jesus, who are hungrily longing to matter when to you they already do. So, Lord, send us to them for your glory for their rescue. In Jesus' name, amen.